Hello everyone and welcome to the Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster and I'm the online editor of Motorsport magazine. What a special hour we have lined up. Not only do we have the return of Jack Phillips, our online content assistant, we have Anthony Davidson. Anthony, a very, very warm welcome. Thanks very much. Yeah, good to be here. Um, so, apart from being Formula, Formula, former Formula One driver, winner of the World Endurance Championship 2014, you are also the winner of that year's Tourist Trophy. Um, and we're sitting here in Pall Mall in the club today. Uh, you're sort of here for quite a special evening. What's, what's going on this evening? Um, well, we're here to uh, celebrate the Tourist Trophy. Um, and uh, yeah, in, the, in combination with the RAC here in Pall Mall and uh, the WEC, in a combined effort to uh, yeah, celebrate uh, that uh, amazing trophy and uh, and just motor racing in general, which uh, is uh, with Silverstone coming up uh, for the first round uh, on Easter weekend in Silverstone for for the WEC, our opening race of the championship. It's uh, it's a great way to celebrate it. So I mentioned you won the Tourist Trophy in 2014, and that's obviously for winning the British round of the World Endurance Championship. Obviously, when you're a driver, the winning the race is the most important thing. But these these extra accolades, things like the Tourist Trophy, I mean, they must mean they must be quite special as a driver to get sort of not just the Winners' Cup, but also the that socking great big trophy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being a Brit myself, it's it's easy to appreciate. Um, but on that day, uh, my two teammates, who are one's from Switzerland uh, and the other from France, they they didn't really recognize it they didn't know what it was all about so I had to explain it to them you know it's the oldest trophy in motorsport it's really something special some really famous names on there um, so to join that elite uh, few that have been on the uh, engraved on the uh, on the trophy side is uh, is, is amazing um, and we lifted it with pride all together that day um, I wouldn't say it's a, a cherry on top it's it's something that means more than that um, you know, when, when, when your racing career is done and you look back at it one day, you tick all the highlights, I guess. And uh, that would certainly be one of the highlights in, in having your name on, on a trophy such as that. Well, why do you think there are so many? I mean, there are loads of British drivers in sports cars at the moment. Is that because of a particular era of drivers being so strong and they haven't sort of quite, it hasn't worked out for them in Formula One? Or what, why are there so many British drivers in sports cars? Because there are loads of them, which is great. And it's, you know, it's really good to see. But... Um, is, is, there, is there some secret to it? Why aren't we seeing them all? We must be so accommodating, I guess, as, as people, <laughs> as a nation. You know, we <laughs> we, uh, it fits well in sports cars where you have to be uh, selfless, I guess. But uh, I don't know. Um, you, you know, uh, F1 is an egotistical series um, where only the strongest survive. And I think maybe there is, you know, I was joking, but maybe there is some truth to it in that, uh, you know, the Brits are quite accommodating and, and we you know we're, we're good team players and I think that's really what you need in sports cars um, but yeah you know Formula One these days it's it's taking a, an awful lot of money like it's always done but even more so than ever before and maybe you know LMP1, LMP2 is now seen as a true ladder to get to Formula One um, so you can highlight your talent in, in sports cars as that progression into F1, whereas maybe a few years before it wasn't. Before it was a world championship, um, I think it didn't have as much uh, accolade and, um, and recognition. Well, when is the point where you think, I'm now a sports car driver, rather than so all the young kids now coming through, swapping their single-seaters for sports cars? When do they reach that point, do you think, when they're now a single, uh, sports car driver? It's, I mean, there's, there's no definitive answer, I guess, for that. For me, it was easy. Um, 
the F1 dream ended when my team pulled out and uh, the money wasn't there. I had no personal backing and I was uh, I was yeah mid twenties anyway or late twenties actually. Um, and you know after ringing around the teams and I think then Toyota pulled out as well and and there were basically more drivers than seats and I just thought you know what it's time to look elsewhere. So for me it was quite easy. I felt like I was on the older side already in Formula One. Um, and I'd given it a good go and, and, you know, under unfortunate circumstances, I was left uh, out in the cold, really. Um, but I think for younger drivers coming through, it's, it's a harder question to, to answer. Um, I think you just have to grab the opportunity when you can in Formula One. And if it's not there and if it looks like it's not going to be there, you, you have to look elsewhere before it's too late and then you're forgotten. I think it's interesting that actually quite a lot of drivers at a very young age now are saying, I want to drive sports cars. Which is, it's, I think it's, it's good to see, and certainly it's good for the World Endurance Championship, and there's drivers recognising the, the calibre of drivers in the championship at the moment. So that is, that is good well to when see. Well, when I first joined sports cars, I, I called it the, uh, the secret of motor racing, the secret formula of motor racing. You know, nobody really knew about it, especially the younger drivers. I mean, when I was, when I was a kid, I, I knew of Group C, but I wasn't as fanatical about it as Formula One. I, I didn't really watch any races. I knew that the cars looked cool. Um, and it was a hard, you know, particularly Le Mans was a, a really special, hard event. Uh, but I didn't, um, it, you know, I, did, I didn't follow it avidly uh, like a true fan, like a bobble hat. And, uh, but I did in Formula One. And um, I think since it's become a, a fully fledged world championship, it's, it's seen as, uh, you know, that that's kind of secret formula is, is gone. It's, it's now very much in the spotlight. Yeah. And I uh, so... I'm going to start off with a couple of sort of less positive points, um, but don't worry, we're g it's going to get more and more positive as we go through the podcast. We're going to be dancing on the tables to sort of highway to hell um, <laughs> by the end of it. Um, so at the end of last year, it's break, you know, the breaking news was Audi pulling out. Um, first of all, A, did you see it coming when, you know, as soon as Porsche came in, the sister mark? And secondly, you know, how big an impact is that on the championship? Because they've been there so long. They're the team that everyone always sort of aims to beat, um, and there's now just uh, there's just Toyota and Porsche left, really, in the in LMP1 class. Yeah, well, it's not the first time in my sports car career that I've just uh, been there with with the two manufacturers to fight each other. Um, when I was with Peugeot, it was it was Audi, and now with Audi gone, it's it's uh, Porsche. So the sole VAG group remains. Um, I can't obviously speak on behalf of of them. It's their decision uh, at the end of the day, and. Uh, you, you know, one is, is a bit of a double-edged sword, really, manufacturers being involved in in, in sports cars or, or Formula One or any category of racing. Um, it's brilliant while they're there. It's terrible when they're not. It's and, and you you have to ride the the crest of the wave while it's while it's good. And we had a, a great uh, couple of years with the three manufacturers. I managed to luckily win the championship when there were three manufacturers. It kind of gives it. Uh, well, for me, it was a bit more personal pride, really, the fact that you had conquered two uh, manufacturers rather than just the one. And um, but yeah, it, it ebbs and flows, and you know, manufacturers will come and go. It's part and parcel of of motor racing, and as long as there are a few around it at any time, that's a good thing. Um, and it's good that such manufacturers like Porsche and Toyota are attracted to to uh, WEC at the moment. How did that Audi battle evolve? Because every year seems slightly different. The car would be have slightly different characteristics. One would be better. Did that feel like a different year every season? Or did it all merge into one yeah, long battle? It's uh, well, having raced them since the Peugeot days. Like I say, it's um, I've really seen the sport change a lot. Not just in terms of the regulations, but 
in terms of the the professionalism between the teams, um, I think when Toyota first joined, they bought this all the knowledge from Formula One. You could really see they were a fresh Formula One team um, to try their hand at something else, um, or to retry their hand at something else, I should say. And you could see that where Audi and Peugeot used to be, Audi then had to step it up to Toyota's level um, in the aero department, the engine department. You know, they really had to raise their game. And then Porsche joined, and everybody else had to carry on raising their game because it's uh, you know that that's just the nature of the beast. It's you know people come in full of energy, um, throwing everything at it, and you it's it's been really fascinating to watch the series uh, grow and grow. And to uh, to be a part of that as a driver and, and the technology that, that evolves every year is, is sensational. It really is. I mean, we don't talk about it enough. We're not allowed to talk about it enough. It's a shame. Um, but that, again, it's, it's, uh, it's part of motor racing that when it's at that level, it's, it's, secret, it's secret business. I, I have a section on some of the technology, so I, was, I guess that part is going to be a little bit shorter than I, than I foresaw. <laughs> not going to get much, yes. <laughs> um, the final sort of less positive question I've got. Um, we can't go anywhere really without talking about Le Mans 2016, the sort of the most gutting result for a team I think there's been in, in all the sort of recent decades, certainly, and, um, you know, and probably it'll be in the top 10 of the history of motorsport, I think, or even the top five. Um, I've got a question here from Nick Holland. Um, he wants to ask, how does it feel of being robbed of that Le Mans victory? Um, and how do you follow it up? Does it increase your desire? Does it, I mean, how long does it take to get over? <laughs> It's a good question. Um, I knew the question was coming. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, everybody, to answer it in a blunt way, everybody has a coulda, woulda, shoulda story from Le Mans. Um, that's, that's that race. You know, it's a, it's a long old race. Lots of things can happen at any point. Um, and it's, in a way, it's more gutting when you lose the race very early on because then you have to get back in the car when it's fixed and then endure the whole 23 or 22 hours of knowing there's no hope in a way like we did in uh, in 2014 and there was no hope of victory somehow we 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 managed to get a podium out of it um but you're never going to win the race and that was the hardest Le Mans I think I've ever done in 2014 but um we bagged those valuable points for the championship and which we then focused on later in the year and, and, and eventually won but you know, in terms of coulda, woulda, shoulda stories go at Le Mans, I think I've pretty much got the best one. So I'm, I'm quite, kind of, yeah, happy and sad about that. Um, how long does it take to get to get over? I'm really still not over it. And I think even if I go on to win it another three or four times, um, I'll still remember 2016 as, uh, as, as really that one that got away. A lot of, um, some drivers would say that Le Mans is so important they'd give up. You know, the World Championship for it. Would you put yourself in that camp? So you'd swap 2014 for a Le Mans victory? No. No? No. Because the way I, I kind of got through last year is to tell myself that it's um, it's a one-off event. As grand as it, as it is, It's a lot of it's down to luck, as we all saw last year. Um, you can really, on paper, have all of the credentials to win it. You can do everything you want to win it. But if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. Where to win a championship as a driver or any athlete in the world competing, to put together a world championship and win it is, uh, is, is much harder than doing that one, although yes, it's a, it's a whole day of racing. It's still just one day of racing. Um, 
rather than lots of different circuits, lots of different permutations, weather conditions, different scenarios of traffic to deal with, different handling characteristics of the car and the different tyres and everything else you have to combat through a whole season of racing. For me, as a sportsman, that's much harder to to come out on top of. And it proves that you were the best. Through the whole season, you were the best, on average. Um, whereas that one race, well, you can fluke it. To, to, I was going to say, there are some obviously fantastic drivers who won Le Mans 24 hours, but there are also some who probably didn't deserve to win the Le Mans 24 hours based on talent alone. So, you know, it's, 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 as you say, well, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, everybody deserves to win it um, if they do stand on that top step. I mean, you know, last year we, as a team, we, we threw it away. Um, as unfortunate as it was and as, as, as unlucky as it was, well, from a team's point of view, it wasn't really that unlucky because the team can control reliability. A driver can't control reliability, maybe like they could have done in the olden days. Um, so from a driver's point of view, yeah, it's unlucky. But as a whole team, well, it wasn't really unlucky. Um, it's unlucky in a way when it happened. It's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, these things can be controlled from a team's point of view. And uh, just like a driver can control not going off the track. So the... The guys that ended up winning that race that day, well, none of them went off the track. None of them did anything crazy or silly. And they all deserved as drivers to stand on that top step. Um, you know, our car crew deserved to stand on that top step. We didn't do anything wrong. Um, but as a team, a whole team, we did do something wrong. And, uh, and that's why we didn't, we didn't win it. So, uh, yeah, it's just all we needed is one, one more lap. And uh, if they had built that car to do 23 hours and... 57 minutes or whatever it was uh, they did a really good job but we need 24 hours so <laughs> it's um yeah that's just you know looking at it very pragmatically that's that's does the it, answer does it make you fall a little bit of love the, with the race oh I'd, I'd done run. that a long time ago yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yeah I've, I've done it enough times to have fallen out of love with the race a long time ago and, and you know what i got the best out of myself last year by and it's no disrespect to the race whatsoever the way I got the best out of myself is treating it like a 24-hour go-kart race for charity. Because I just thought... Blimey, remind yeah. me never to invite you on a 24-hour charity <laughs> go-kart race. You know what, it's just... I, I just approached it last year, and I'll do the same thing again this year, and even what happened last year concretes the fact that I approached it in the right way last year, and that anything can happen at any time in that race. As long as I do my job you just see how it all unfolds. And, um, you know, I, I drove the wheels off the thing, don't get me wrong, but it's because I was loving it. Because I didn't care about it, I was loving it. And if you go into that race really het up, like I've done in the past, wishing you're going to win it and give it everything you've got and, oh, you're going to be so depressed and disappointed if you don't win it because, oh, I need this in my CV so much, you know, you're never going to win it and it's, it's going to eat into you because it is a cruel race. So approaching it like I did last year, for me, it worked. Maybe for some others, it wouldn't. Um, and uh, I'm really pleased. I think that is the best I've ever driven in a sports car race last year um, in Le Mans. And I, I want to approach it in exactly the same way this year. Right, on to more positive things. Um, I, so I was going to talk about the hybrid systems and things like that, which we will do, um, despite the fact you're not allowed to talk too much about them. Um, there's a question here from Stephen. Um, uh, something you did win, um, Formula Ford Festival, in 2000, um, he was saying it was one of the best defensive drives he's ever seen. Um, how important was that win for your career? Yeah, I think it was it was pretty pivotal. 
Um, it was a great race. Um, it was it was a defensive drive. Uh, basically, to cut a long story short, it was wet the whole way through. We had the car to do the job in the rain. Um, in the in the Miguel uh, French chassis that we were driving at Hayward Racing, and uh, against the Van Diemens, the works Van Diemens, um, and it dried up for the final. So I was there on pole position. I'd been creaming it easily all the way through the weekend. I did the race was mine, and then it dried up. And um, yeah, everyone went into it in the unknown. But I kind of suspected the the Van Diemens going to be strong, and they really were. Um, and I just had to defend every single lap. I'd I'd seen how it should be done from from other races I'd done. Uh, previously around that track and I think uh, yeah if anyone wants some tips on how to defend around Brands Indy I'm, I'm the man to ask because uh, <laughs> yeah, I did it from start to finish uh, ended up with bent wishbones from them trying to smash me off and everything it was, it was pretty epic um, and uh, yeah the race team got red flagged with just five laps to go and they restarted it <laughs> it's like come on so <laughs> we all started again and the same thing happened again there were damp patches on the track and we were on slicks and it, oh, it was pretty sketchy, but uh, yeah, across the line, it was more relief than joy, I think. Um, and I think yeah, I was being watched by the BAR team at the time. They were just starting their young driver program. And uh, yeah, they, uh, they, were, they were pretty impressed with, yeah, a Formula 1 team only cares whether you win or not. They, they weren't there to see it. Um, they just want the phone call. Yeah, we did the job. So we could ring and say, yeah, we did the job. And uh, and I got onto their young driver program from that point. And yeah, and, and the rest is history, so. Formula Ford racing is, is some of the sort of, it was some of the best racing in the world. You know, it's so it great really to is. watch, especially at brands when, you know, you can just kind of see so much of the circuit. Anywhere, yeah, I mean, yeah. I look back so fondly on Formula Ford. Yes, they had no grip and they were pretty skittish to drive. Um, and maybe you adopted some skills that you never really needed to use ever again in your career, like heel and toe and an H-pad gearbox. You know, but it was, you know, it was really hard to drive. Um, and the best thing about it, by miles, no wings, lots of slipstreaming, the leader could never get away. And there's <laughs> something to be learned yeah. from Formula Ford well, in, for, on, for that. On that <laughs> note, what do you think about the new Formula One rules? Um, talking of sort of uh, no, no downforce and no grip. Well, it's exactly what I was uh, suggesting. It's, uh, you know, if you go put in big wings on cars and, and generate lots of downforce from the wings, well, the wings need clean, clear air to work efficiently. Um, so as soon as you get behind this kind of invisible barrier of no man's land behind the car that you can never get to because the wings won't work when you get into that kind of bubble, uh, well, you're never going to have pure racing and you're going to need to rely on things like DRS to, as a, as a band-aid to try and get your way past the car in front. Um, so Formula Ford, and in a way sports cars as well, um, because we don't have the big wings, it's, a lot of it's from ground effects in a sports car, um, you, know, you generate the grip in a different way and therefore the racing is more organic, it's more pure, and you don't have to rely on, uh, on, on kind of what I would say gimmicks. Yeah. So, looking at this year, um, let's let's talk about this forbidden topic of, of technology. Um, the rules have been sort of quite static for a while, but what could you just sort of explain in a few sentences the hybrid system on the on on the car? Because um, it's not the same as Formula One, um, but it's an extremely com complex, cutting edge. So, for a layman like me, what are you driving? <laughs> We're basically driving a souped-up Toyota Prius. That's, that's basically what it is. It, it's, it is. it shares a lot of the same It's got to be sexier than that. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen the Super GT Prius? That's pretty sexy, yeah, I must say. Yeah. Um, you know, so 
it's essentially yeah i mean it is similar to the to the formula 1 system uh, particularly the porsche system i believe because they run the uh the heat recovery as well uh, like the uh, so i mean the uh, the turbo effectively charging the the battery at, at, at high speed in a, in formula 1 they've got their set of regulations in in WEC uh you're allowed uh two recovery systems so toyota choose to run a front electronic motor and a rear electronic motor to harvest the energy under braking, so kinetic energy. Uh, whereas Porsche has opted for a front electronic motor and the turbo or the heat recovery. So there's their, that's their two options. So achieving a similar thing, but in a, in a different way. Um, and so our system is more favorable for uh, heavier, longer braking circuits, i.e. Le Mans. Um, whereas the, uh, the Porsche system and the F1 system uh, can regenerate a bit of uh, a bit of charge to the battery at high speed when you're flat out. Um, it starts to sap the energy from it, it. It effectively turns off the turbo, and then that that energy goes into the battery. As far as I am aware, um, <laughs> that's how it, their system works. Um, so it is incredibly uh, sophisticated. It's complicated, and uh, but it is fascinating. You know, for a driver like myself that's technically minded, uh, love technology as a whole and uh, to drive these cars that have this huge battery um, delivering massive power uh, almost half of what the engine the combustion engine will give um, is is incredible with with eight megajoules around Le Mans uh, you really feel it when when the battery kicks in um, and uh, when when it deploys you know at the beginning of the straights it it really is uh, you know it's it's a thousand horsepower combined there or thereabouts, and um, uh, despite the weight of the car, you you really get a good a good kick, and uh, yeah, you, it's it's really fun to drive, knowing that when you're braking, you're recharging all that energy, it stores it up super quick. Um, you know, you can never believe how quickly they're able to regenerate uh, energy into the battery these days, and the technology just keeps evolving more and more and more. And this technology is. It's it's there in in road cars and and what we learn on the track it it really genuinely does not just saying it for PR BS reasons it, it does you know they're learning from it and they're it's filtering into the road cars. What was what was the first hybrid car that you drove? Because I I just want to know what it was like when you came from sort of normal normally aspirated F1 and then drove a hybrid car for the first time. Uh, well, it, it was the Toyota. So it was so the Toyota. Yeah, yes, yeah, that okay. was the first hybrid. Uh, and no, I, I tell a lie. It was the Honda F1 car. Um, just before they pulled out, um, I drove it at a straight line test in Santa Pod and I had right. the curse button and it, uh, yeah, I remember feeling just this little bit of extra power from the, uh, from the battery. Um, and then, yeah, when you think where it's come from since that day, that would have been back in end of 2008. Uh, yeah, it's, it's progressed it, more than tenfold. It's, it's incredible what they can do now. How do you think, um, Lopez will get on? Obviously, jumping straight into this Toyota from well, he's done quite a bit of testing. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and he's he's an adaptable driver. I mean, we saw when he did touring car coming from single seaters. Yeah, um, I I think that for him probably uh, not that I want to speak on behalf of him, but it was probably a bigger challenge driving this front wheel drive car than in touring car with no grip and and you know that must have been really different. Yeah, a different experience going from open you know open wheel single-seater formula in, in, I think, GP2 he came from, and, and then going into, into touring car, that must have been really difficult. Um, so to, it's almost for him, I guess, it's like coming back home. Although he's got 
all the tricks to learn with uh, the hybrid yeah. stuff from inside the car, but a lot of it is is automated these days. It's, it's quite rare to jump straight into LMP1. So Mike Conway did P2, and yeah. a lot of drivers work their way up, and but he's coming straight in. It's going to be quite interesting year for him yeah yeah it will be um i think the biggest challenge the, the biggest shock to him will be traffic management um you know gone are the days Not for him where you can just get your elbows out <laughs> and have a bit of a ding dong it's uh, <laughs> even if you get close to another car in p1 you your body work falls apart and uh <laughs> it's uh, yeah they're pretty fragile machines compared to what he's been driving but he'll be fine you know anyone that's anyone that's won what he has in the past and uh uh, and, and succeeded like he has, it's it's going to be it's going to be easy for him, I think. But it will be an eye opener the first time he, I guess, at the prologue, it'll be the first experience he has of wow, this is a jungle out here. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to <laughs> I'm going to have to survive this. Yeah. A lot of drivers sort of complain about the traffic, and GT drivers aren't perhaps as sort of experienced as they should be. But isn't isn't that part of the charm of Le Mans? I mean, I I think. It's easy to say charm when you're a spectator, when you're in an LMP1 car <laughs> fighting for the lead. Um, it's probably not charming, but... Uh, you know, some of it is when you get into a into a rhythm of, of where you overtake the cars, where they're slower than you, where they're almost as fast as you. Uh, even a GT car can be as quick as you in some of the slow-speed corners. They've got amazing mechanical grip, and uh, especially in, in slippery conditions. So learning all of the different uh, teams and drivers out there and categories is, is part of is part of sports car racing. Um, nobody likes it. It's, it's difficult. You all have to share the same track. You all have a bit of road rage every now and again. Um, I've done Le Mans in the GT and in, in P1 and uh, two very, very different experiences. Um, it's a bit like being, you know, we're here in central London. It's a bit like being a, either a cyclist at one minute on the road or then in a in, in a white van. It's, you know, it, it's, you all have to get on and you all want to get from A to B. But it's, you know, the, as long as you appreciate each other's challenges that lie in front of them, it's it, you, you just have to respect the fact that, um, you know, there, there will be moments where it, you touch each other and, and things go wrong um, and that it will be someone's fault at the end of the day um but some of it is really unavoidable it's it's just you know i think i worked out once that you overtake roughly 500 cars from your journey starting them on to the end as each individual driver so to overtake 500 cars even in the eight the hours average driving, white van man wouldn't do that no, in london no, no. <laughs> i say i've seen more more drama on the way here driving my car through london than, uh, than what i do in Le Mans. but uh yeah, so there there is that challenge there, and yeah. uh, you know, you, you things will every now and again it's and it will go wrong, and I think that's that has to be the skill of the drivers from all categories has to be applauded um, for how how little that actually uh, comes to light. Yeah, um, sorry, just one second. The uh, you mentioned the GT car, but that was Ferrari five fifty. Um, yeah, drove to, it's done his research. Thinking, yeah. Are you <laughs> thinking that you didn't particularly enjoy that Lamar? Well, uh, I was I was kind of just on the brink of getting into Formula One properly. You know, as a test driver, had been for a long time, and uh, the reason it came up was through the Pro Drive connection because David Richards was at BAR at the time. So I had the opportunity to do Le Mans. Looking back at it now, I should have done a lot more racing uh, when I was a test driver. It, although it was a, a bigger job than it is today, or it was a job back then. 
it's uh you know you you covered 15,000 kilometers in a year testing so it really was hard work but still I should have done more racing and I'm I'm glad I did that race not that it ended well with a car in the barrier with a, a broken uh, uh front right wheel bearing which sent me off I'll still never forget Darren Turner for that thanks mate <laughs> Never told me about it, never warned me about it before I got into the car, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I wondered what that weird noise was when I got in down the pit lane. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was my first visit to the uh, Le Mans hospital. They remembered me actually when I really? went back there in, tw- in uh, 2012 <laughs> and they were broken back. You've been here before. <laughs> so it all looks the same when you're on your back because the ceilings, are, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I've, I'm glad I've got that experience to fall back on. Um, and I think in that year i was i was looking in the mirrors more than going forwards um i i was i was kind of petrified out there not being in the fastest class always having to accommodate for the the faster cars and always being on guard for when they're gonna strike pop out from, from into your mirrors and they're there the next minute in the corner diving down your inside so um yeah in some ways i in some ways because i i managed to stay out of trouble and maybe i was too accommodating um I'm a little harder on the GT drivers when they when they, when they don't see you coming because that day that that 24 hour race I really did see them coming I w- I lived in the mirrors like I say um but then you know you you are dealing with amateurs sometimes out there as well or gentlemen drivers and uh and and things can go pretty pretty wrong through no fault of their own it's like being on the road with a a learner driver you can't really you know you, you can't put 100% blame uh, on their side because they're they're not at your level they haven't got your capacity and you therefore you shouldn't treat them like they've got your capacity so I've almost got less tolerance for the uh, the pro drivers when something goes wrong than than for the amateur drivers and I still I, I, I can't blame uh, the driver that uh, that clashed into me in in uh, in Le Mans in 2012 I, I can't blame him 100 percent it's just it's just the race you know those those things happen yeah, I was going to ask that really, because um, it was mainly his fault. And Perizzini, wasn't it? Yeah. That. So you know, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like you crash into a learner on the road. It's you, you can't. You, you, it, although it might be their fault, it's you. You can't blame them. You can't be as hard on them as as you as you would be if it was a, a pro driver. Say, did you find it um, difficult to trust for the next race? Did you find it difficult to? Were you sort of find yourself looking for them after that? Yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, and I still find it hard to overtake into that corner today. But I learned from it. You know, the mistake I made was going too far over to the right-hand side before the corner, and probably got into his blind spot through again no fault of my own. I was thinking I'm safer if I get away from the car as far away as possible. But actually, I've learned since it's better to be closer to the car before going into a corner like that because they've got more chance of seeing you. Um, especially if they're a left-hand drive car like he was. So, you know, I think if you don't learn from situations like that, then then it will happen again. And uh, I make sure that I I try not to overtake into that corner, um, especially today with the fuel cuts that we have. It makes it incredibly hard to judge closing speeds. Um, like it was back then as well, although we didn't have the fuel cuts, it was a new car to me. They're always tweaking the regulations, and I don't, I don't think it's appreciated um, a lot of the time what an implication that has a knock-on effect for the drivers out there in how we have to then recalibrate for all the different categories and the car that we're driving 
for those different situations that you find yourself in. So I was approaching him still with my, with my Peugeot head on, and in those, I would have made it. I would have made the, st- the gap easily and been in front of him, but in a car that had a different set of regulations and hybrid, and I think they had tweaked the regulations for the GTs as well, you combine just a few different tweaks of the regs here and there, and, and, and it can be sometimes a recipe for disaster. So on a on a lap at Le Mans, you've obviously you're looking out with GT drivers. You you're obviously trying to concentrate on your race and your pace. How busy are you with the hybrid systems? You mentioned that there's sort of some of them are automated, but it's not just a case of um, you know throttle, brake, steering, and gears. Is there? There's there's a lot more to it. Yeah, there's there's a lot more to <laughs> it. Um, the drivers more in tune sometimes than the uh, than the engineers are. Uh, you can see the information on the screen quicker than what they can sometimes, or expect the situation that might arise from a battery that's got that's too fully charged or too depleted. Um, different things can happen um, to your to your car if you get into those situations. And basically, as as everybody runs hybrids more more and more. Uh, they're learning that to keep the battery in this kind of happy equilibrium of temperature and, and charge gets the best out of it. Um, so, you know, that's what you're always trying to do and manage on the track. And uh, say so in Formula One, it's easier to do because they have less, um, they've, they've got bigger storage for what they actually use, what they need in Formula One. So they, they charge and, and uh, deplete the battery a lot more slowly than say the Porsche system and our system would in P1. We stress the battery much more uh, than than an F1 car would uh, with the eight megajoules that we're running at Le Mans. So um, to to keep the battery in that kind of happy equilibrium is is quite a challenge, not just from a driver but from the team's point of view as well. So we're on top of that inside the car. You know, we we can change the way that we brake. Um, we can change the way how we put our foot down in the in the corners and where we l- decide to lift and coast for the fuel cuts that we have. So although there are quite a few kind of automated systems around hybrid technology in racing cars these days, the driver can still have a huge impact and influence on how uh, how you can sort of store the energy and use the energy. I think that's why um, the sports car drivers in Formula E often seem to be at the front because they're used yeah. to dealing with all the batteries and all, everything they need to keep an eye on. So Wemmy can just drive off into the distance. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't the uh, he wasn't the only one. Although he is very intelligent and stuff like that, um, probably is one of the reasons why he's so strong in Formula E. But uh, you know, other drivers do they do understand it as well. And um, you know, Lopez, is, for example, he's doing Formula E and he'll be learning a lot there and 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 I think it's uh there's a crossover definitely between um what you do in formula e and 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 WEC and you know vice versa so yeah they as long as there's a battery involved somewhere <laughs> a driver's going to be knowledgeable on yeah. on how you store the energy and use it a bit of an awkward calendar this year as well the, the yeah um, <laughs> it's uh it's a series you know I'm interested in I I, I like I say it said before I like technology and uh you know I know electric ca- pure electric cars don't float some people's boat but I I, I respect it as a as a series um, and at the end of the day you know it's a racing car with four wheels and it's you know there there's there is an engine there and um, I, I think you know some great drivers and and it shows that the good drivers from WEC do well in in Formula E um, and vice versa it's you know is is a I think it's a good series but 
there's a there's a clash of the calendars, and I, I see yeah. uh, Seb and and the other guys, you know, Jose struggling with their calendars, and I sit back just laughing sometimes. <laughs> I think, well, I'm glad I'm just doing WEC. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Sometimes I ask talk show guests, you know, what their favourite era of racing was, or if another era they would have liked to have competed in. But I get the impression that actually you're competing in your you know, preferred era because you love the technology, you love the hybrid systems. And okay, whenever you were racing, you thought it would have been cutting edge. And I'm sure in 40 years' time, they'll look back and maybe listen to or watch this podcast in virtual reality or something and, <laughs> and say, God, Hans, you know, you would have loved it now. Um, so, what am I right in thinking that? That it's this is kind of the era for you, the cutting edge? Well, you know, different people have enjoyed different generations of motor racing through their lives and you know I've, I grew up in the uh, in the 80s watching Formula One so I've seen uh, the turbo engines they had back there and then going to normally aspirated and the V10s and then I've seen the slicks and the groove tires and lots of dependency on on big wings in Formula One and uh, and, and then the the introduction of hybrid cars and uh, although some people they don't like it. I I followed it from from the beginning, and I think every single iteration that comes along, I'm just more and more fascinated by it. You know, I I don't remember feeling disappointed that, that the original turbo era went in Formula One, and I enjoyed the sound of the cars back then when they went to the normally aspirated engines. Um, not that anyone was complaining about the sound of the turbo engines in the first place in the 80s. And I remember my dad complaining, "Oh, these things sound awful." But I enjoyed when they went to the to the normally aspirated. It sounded cool. Um, they looked good, um, and then then aero technology really started to develop, and uh, that was fascinating. Watching all these winglets springing up on the cars, and and how much fast they could go with lap times, and and it was all because of this aerodynamics that nobody really understood back then. And then, and it's become so powerful in in racing now that almost it's to its detriment. Um, and I think maybe that now needs to be detuned slightly and find the grip somewhere else in sake of finding better racing or more pure racing. And I think that's what I get in sports cars. You know, I, I get the chance to sit closely behind the car in front um, and really pick your line carefully to know where you're going to pounce or not. And actually, the regulations of having fuel cuts for us Although some people don't like it, they don't like the idea of, oh, you're saving fuel by lifting and coasting at the end of the straight. Well, actually, I, like I said before, it gives you a tool to use inside the car that is up to the driver's discretion where you use the override of the fuel cut. And this makes some fascinating moments on the track. Because if you're going into a, a place where you know you're racing the guys who's going to get the fuel cut the same as you, if you press the override and you happen to use more fuel into that corner, well, you're going to get him or her, and then you're going to pull away on the exit of the corner, but they know that you're going to get that cut, a bigger cut, somewhere else on the lap. So it is organic. You know, you're still, you've still got the same energy allowance for the lap, but there's no DRS involved. So for me, that's still pure. And later on in the lap, it's up to you to defend your, your situation, and they've got more fuel coming later on than you have and uh, mixed with the traffic as well. That's what makes the sports car racing so fascinating when you're behind the wheel. Yeah, I d I'd Group C was basically a, f a fuel limited formula. 
you know, certain people yeah. always look back at Group C and say, oh, God, what, what a mega era. And, mm. you know, they t I think r the, there is always a case of roast into glasses in motorsport. I think we, we just know more now as well as, you know, I, I speak as a fan. I've been there watching the, the Melbourne Grand Prix and uh, speaking as a fan of the sport. We're just way more informed today as well. And, and, uh, and it's how you deal with that information sitting on your sofa. You either embrace it or and, and, and always trust that whoever's behind the wheel, it's still about skill. Whether it's a skill that you appreciate or not, you have to appreciate that it is a skill. Like heel and toe used to be a skill, it's not anymore. You know, it's things I come and go. I know, it's... Uh <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the last time I healed and towed a car. But uh, yeah, you know, it was a skill for me in my career at some point. It's not anymore. Um, but I've seen people struggle with flappy paddle gearboxes and, uh, and it's, it's just a different skill. Yeah. Now, it's obviously the championship battle this year is, is between between yourselves and Porsche. Is there a, I mean, obviously we haven't had even the prologue yet um, and the first race isn't until next month, but do you have a sense of where you're at in terms of the development and um, where you might be in terms of in relation to Porsche or is it is it just a complete unknown? I mean, surely you must hear rumors and, and no it's bits and pieces. Little bits and pieces, but it, it, it really is a bit of an unknown. Uh, you know, you can kid yourself sometimes, think like we did in the 2015 season, that we had a really nice car. We'd just come off the back of a championship. The car still felt pretty similar to the, the last year's car. Um, you know, we had a, a bit better hybrid system. The car had more grip slightly. The aero was more cleaned up, a bit more sophisticated. And we, you know, we really thought we were going to be at least in there with a shout. And we got blown away. It was just, yeah, I mean, y you just don't know sometimes. But, uh, you know, we, we nearly won Le Mans last year on merit. Um, we had the car to do it there. We were competitive uh, on at other circuits through the year. We, we won Fuji again on, on merit um, at the home race. And uh, so I think, you know, if we can build a car at least to that level, we're going we're gonna to be right there with Porsche. The car at the moment feels good. Um, that's all the driver has to go by. Um, the way that the car used to feel compared to how it does now, but we've had a quite a significant tweak again of the regulations, and uh, and and who knows who who's read it right? I don't know. Um, in the same way, the F1s went to Melbourne. No one really knew. We all suspected Ferrari had a good package, but we ultimately, a lot of people didn't believe they could actually win the race like they did. Um, so we like to believe that we're there at this point with Porsche. Um, I think it's good to not expect any more. Um, to level your expectations, and um, and then you can only be pleasantly surprised, and that's that's the better way to to, to approach it rather than thinking you're the you're the big dogs and you're going to uh, go there and destroy everybody and and then you get uh, completely trampled on. That's that's not a good. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's always hurts even more. That, that year, I think Toyota made about three seconds a lap improvement, but then Porsche made six. Sure that. It can't happen again. Well, now knowing what we know about the battery system um, compared to our old uh, supercapacitor system, we all knew. The first time I drove the battery system, I, I just laughed out loud in the car because it, I could feel what we were fighting against all, all the last year, you know, in 2015. And uh, with the regs, at least from the powertrain side of, side of things, staying the same, it, it would be... It's almost impossible to imagine that kind of speed difference happening again in terms of the powertrain side of things. You know, we're both at eight megajoules now. Back then we were at six versus an eight. Um, so, you know, it, you're on a level playing field in terms of megajoule allowance for the lap at least. 
uh, like we were last year and and uh so yeah th- just from that alone i think we'll be we should be you know hopefully there'll be a good fight yeah now it's, if, if we were doing Le Mans, we would be approaching sort of lunchtime on sunday at the moment we are t- nearing the end of uh, of this talk show but i want to take another uh, question here this is from uh, rockingham slot i'm guessing that's not his or her real real name slot cars I think. slot cars right um is there a reason behind the driver combos um he's saying i presume driver combos have a similar styles and well you know because obviously that's useful when you get up to set the get to the setup of the car or do you just compromise on setup and I mean how much thought goes into the driver combos? First you pick the driver that doesn't pee in the seat <laughs> they're out straight away and then you go from there <laughs> no it's um, basically at Toyota we, or most of the time you just get you just get put together you know the team decides you get put together um, it's very rare that the drivers have a say in who they would like in the team next to you or not when you're signing contracts as a driver, it's, it's every man for themselves. Uh, you know, it's you, you you get you get the contract. You're happy to be there, and then you kind of get told where you where you're going to end up. And uh, it's only when you get established in the team that then you can start to maybe decide who you would like with you. Um, and uh, you know, that's that's only happened very very rarely from drivers that I know. Um, but yeah, you know, drivers come and go like teams come and go, and and you kind of, you know, I used to be Vert's teammate in uh, in Peugeot, and we won races together, big races like uh, Sebring, and uh, and then you arrive at Toyota. He was already there, established, and I arrived there, kind of like in the second car, and so I wasn't his teammate then. And it, yeah, it's some readjusting goes goes on, but uh, it's um. Like I say, it's when you get the contract and you get into the team, it's you can't be fussy on on wh- who you want to be with. Yeah. How much? How difficult it was it when you first came into sports cars to sort of share the car? And because for Formula One, single seaters in general actually is, is an extremely sort of selfish sport when it comes to the driver, because it is all about you have to be the most comfortable you can be in the car and have the car um, perfect for you. Some drivers, I think, find it quite easy to then step in. You accept what what it is. Um, and other drivers find it quite difficult. Where, where do you sit on, on that scale? Well, I was always quite a good team player from where I came from. My background as a test driver, I was always doing the, you know, doing the donkey work for, for the race drivers, setting the cars up, um, you know, giving them all of the information you could do in a debrief. They jump into the car and they get the glory uh, in the, in the, on the race day. And um, so I was kind of used to being a real good team player and maybe settled into that role slightly too well. Um, too British, maybe too British. Like I like I joked about at the start, you know, I was very accommodating. <laughs> so uh, so I found it really easy, and actually I much preferred it. You know, as a person, I much preferred being in a, a less egotistical kind of atmosphere, um, and really working with a team of drivers, um, and that the camaraderie between the drivers, on top of the working relationship you have, and the sharing of success or defeat as a trio of drivers or a duo, whatever it will be, uh, at that time, it's it's uh, it's like when you see football players celebrate together. It, there, there's more elation almost when you win uh, than than when it's just yourself. It's quite a lonely experience sometimes in F1 or as a, a single seater driver. When you win, it's great. You feel brilliant, and it's great for your CV and everything. And a few people come up and say, "Well done," and you get the accolade from the fans and, and and the respect, but you don't. There's no one else feeling like you, 
And that's the brilliant thing about sports cars, that there are at least two others that feel <laughs> exactly what you feel. Yeah. And it's, it's cool. So, yeah, I, I, I like that side of it. Um, and some drivers are more egotistical when they come to sports cars. There's, uh, uh, you know, a lot of... Uh, Non-Brits. Adjusting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> some Brits as well sometimes, so yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's really fascinating to watch the drivers that struggle and even drivers that you could pick from Formula One that you know would struggle more in a sports car environment than uh, not naming any names. They would, you can see the I ones that would I struggle yeah. more in a kind of in a sports car environment than, uh, and it's not just from sharing the car with teammates. It's how you behave as a driver, um, as a person almost within the team. You can be very destructive uh, if if you're a. Uh, you know, if you if you if you rock the the boat too much in a sports car team, it can it can change the whole atmosphere uh, from having a you know a, a bad egg there. Yeah, it's a fascinating answer. I've never heard it put so eloquently. Um, Thanks very so much. Yeah, no, lots of people <laughs> sort of talk about it, but it's, yeah, beautifully put. So, um, what I've tried to do over the last uh, last few talk shows is ask some quite standard questions to each of our guests. Um, um, that they're not too difficult. Don't worry. Um, they're not sort of on the on the detail of. Toyota's hybrid system. Um, first one is you've got one car and you're going to take it to a track. What are you taking and where are you going? One car, well, race car. Yeah, it could be yeah. A, yeah, race car. Let's let's stick stick to race car. Could be something that you haven't even driven. You know what? Yeah, I would like to. I would like to have a go in uh, in a modern F1 car, um, just to see what they feel like, how the powertrain feels compared to what I drive, to feel this uh, massive grip that they have today. Um, if it wasn't one of those, it would be probably the uh, the V10 um, Honda or BAR, whatever it was back then. Um, when I was test driver, 2004, that was they were they were really quick cars as well. And uh, maybe to compare the two of those, you know, the modern F1 car versus the 2004 car, um, to see where see how they would line up. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go for the the modern modern hybrid car just to just to see what it's all about. See a motorsport cover story coming up. Um, so, <laughs> where, where are you going to take them? Where would I take that car? I mean, I've never, believe it or not, I've never done the Nordschleife in anything. Really? Yeah, yeah. Only on the wow, video. Even game. I've been around the Nordschleife. Yeah, there. so you went up well, on me. Look at me. Yeah, wow. yeah. I'm sure I'll get loads of offers now <laughs> yeah. to drive anything. Well, I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah, we've yeah. got Mercedes and BAR <laughs> on the phone right now, actually, <laughs> wanting to do a back to back test. So, um, but I think. Yeah, I'd li I'd leave that one because uh, it it would be uh, a bit brutal on the uh, on the car around there. Um, some some fantastic circuits. Um, I was only speaking to somebody the other day about uh, Elkhart Lake, uh, Road America, and I think that would be a, a pretty special track to well to drive anything around. Um, but yeah, particularly a a modern F1 car or or sports car that would be a that would be a good experience. Yeah. Right. So the the second one. Um who has inspired you the most during your career? Um, I was always a fan of uh, Alain Prost. I liked his style. Um, him and uh, and then yeah, the, you know the typical ones of Senna and Mansell, and basically that was my era growing up. And they were they were your heroes. You know they they were doing something you just love to to do when you were a kid and. Almost when you get there, it's not a special anymore. Um, 
but uh, yeah, back then it was. I really I admired the way that Prost drove. Um, so conservative, but extremely quick as well at the same time. And I think people forget that um, how closely he he ran Senna and actually could uh, could could often destroy him on the day. Um, you know, he he was. He was better than what people yeah, give him credit for. And, think, yeah, and, and, and he yeah. did it in such an effortless way as well. Um, that's a big skill to, yeah. to make it look easy. Um, but it's, it, it never is. He'd have been perfect for sports cars as well. He would have been, yeah. yeah. We <laughs> could have shared a seat. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, was it Murray Walker who's, who said famously on the commentary, um, oh, Alan Prost is slowing down. Oh, no, he's not. He's just broken the lap record. <laughs> I, something like, I think it was either him or Mansell. Anyway, um, right. Uh, it's the second last one here. Was there a specific moment when you knew you wanted to be a racing driver? Was it watching the likes of Mansell, Senna and Prost? Or was there a, was there a moment when you suddenly thought, hang on, I want this to be my career. This, this is it. No, not not to not to get into karting. I was too young then, you know. As an eight-year-old kid or seven-year-old kid, um, it was my dad's ambition and drive to get me and my brothers into karting because he could never afford to do motor racing himself. Um, so for him, it was uh, you know it, it ticked all the boxes of he would uh, you know it's cheaper to do, cheaper to run, to get your kids into it, and 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 kind of live motor racing through the kids. Um, and watch them develop as drivers and, and learn what it's really all about at grassroots level. Um, so I never really, you know, it w I, I didn't sit there watching TV, watching Formula One, listening, getting weaned on Murray Walker. Uh, I didn't sit there thinking, I've, I want to do this one day. I have to get into a car. You know, it's, I was playing football at the time uh, for my local club and winning trophies there. And that was kind of my thing. And then one day my d I just found myself at the local kart track uh at Rye House in Hoddesdon and and having to go for my eighth birthday and and you know that I was driving around then I can't really remember it but uh that's how I got into into racing but I do very much remember specifically the point when I remember thinking this is what I want to do for the rest of my life and I'm good at it and I know I can make a living from this um and it was when I was 14 years old uh doing junior TKM uh, and it was at the uh, the Open Championship in Bucknell Park uh, that I went on to win that day. And uh, I remember thinking, yeah, I'm, I know I'm good enough to do this forever. Um, and, and that was the defining moment that uh, really nailed it for me, uh, winning that race that day. Then I remember going to school and they were talking about you know, what you want to do as a career prospect and stuff. And I, I was just, I was single track. I, I knew what I wanted to do. And I definitely, from that moment, didn't give school <laughs> enough attention. Um, uh, yeah. If only there were hybrid systems around back yeah. then, I, I would have been fascinated <laughs> at school. Um, am I right in thinking that you actually, you were sort of quite happy in carts, though? Uh, and actually that making a step up to Formula Ford was not something you particularly sort of had in the front of your mind. It was, it was something that developed and obviously you excelled straight away, winning first six races and finishing on your pole. Yeah, think, yeah, pole. yeah. You um, remember better than I do. I, but I, but it's, it's strange that, isn't it? For a lot of races, it's, as soon as they start karting, it's, right, where's the top Formula One? Okay. Whereas with you, you, were, you wanted to get to the top of the karting, which you didn't, but then you were quite keen to stay there. Yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, the dream was Formula One to get to Formula One, when you were a kid, you know, the, the dream to get to Formula One when you're doing karting was, was strong. Um, but uh, I think I'd done karting so long, I could, I could sort of see it becoming my, my future. 
just in karting. I had no backing from anybody. Um, I'd seen uh, my old sparring partner, Jensen Button, move on from karting into Formula Ford and thinking, oh, this is never going to be me. Uh, you know, he's, he's the lucky guy who's found the backing and off he goes. That's gr- you know, great for him. But I wasn't, I wasn't so disappointed um, in thinking my future's in karting. You know, I was a paid professional kart racer doing world championships um uh driving for an italian team living in italy it was you know it was was great stuff but uh yeah when the chance came i knew i had to i knew i had to take it even though yeah even though i was a little bit apprehensive i think at first thinking oh formula four you know it's going to be hard then to come back to karting if if it all goes wrong what am i going to do but uh know I'm, I'm glad I uh, I'm glad I did it because at the time I thought look well Jensen's gone and done it he's done well you know, you know you're at his kind of level you, you have been through all the early years in karting there's no reason why you can't replicate what he's done and uh, and, and then yeah just uh, I made the jump when when luckily found the backing and uh, yeah never looked back mm. it's worked out all right it did work yeah, out all right. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, the final question, because we really are, um, t- we are t- t- I'm not going to say uh, 23 hours and 57 minutes through uh, Le Mans, um, but we are approaching that time. It's, if you weren't a racing driver, what would you have been? Um, a footballer, perhaps, I don't know. Um, I, I don't really know. It's, it's too hard to, uh, I, I do get asked this, or I have been asked this a lot in my career, but I, I never, I never know, cause, because doing something from an eight-year-old kid you just it's all you've ever known um but uh i enjoy i enjoy the tech technology that side of things in racing i I probably would have done something in in uh in programming or or you know some kind of tech i reckon um maybe like graphic design or something my my dad's a a a traditional um sign writer and graphic designer I probably would have got into into business with him and 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 been the sort of computer side because he was the traditional signwriter, like I say, and uh, and and had to by himself make the jump almost to the the computer age of of, of sign signage and and stuff. So I, I probably would have been the the one to set up with him and uh, and and be the uh, computer bod sitting next to <laughs> next to the old man. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that's probably what would have happened. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and so there are many fans out there who uh, are also extremely glad that it didn't happen. Um, Anthony, thank you so much. For, and best of luck this year. Thanks very um, much. Here's to another World Championship and a, and a Le Mans win. Um, Jack, thank you very much for joining me and asking sort of sensible questions. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for recording this, as always. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. We'll be back very soon with another talk show. We'll see you all then. Bye-bye. Thanks for now. Bye-bye.